The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Pella Neuroth-Taylor, live from Sweden, on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. Today's talk, I'm going to try and anatomize the different theories about how the world operates and then talk to one of the most articulate exponents of one of the theories. Um, I guess that the mainstream theory that ones you read in The Guardian, The New York Times, is that uh, the world uh, is good when uh, the democracies are minding their own business. They have no in- aggressive intent towards anyone. Um, everything is what you see in the in the daily press and on your state radio station or TV station. Um, sometimes these authoritarian leaders pop up coming out of nowhere and having genocided or oppressed their own populations. They often have Arab or Russian surnames. Uh, they have mysterious plans to overtake the entire world and have to be stopped in some way. Um, they're all, and frequently they're called little Hitlers and so on. And we had Assad, we had Saddam, we had Gaddafi, and now sort of Putin, but Putin is more dangerous because he's got nuclear weapons. Um, this is taken as given among the sort of um, commentariat crowd who comment in foreign affairs in uh, in Washington magazine. And then you've got uh, CNN's uh, Global Village Hall, Hall talk, and it's very confident that some of our top names in the journalist business espouse that view. Then you've got a sort of more realist view, which says that the world is run by or the competing great powers, all of whom are approximately the same. I mean, some are a little bit better than others, but everyone is striving to maximize their power. And everyone uses propaganda and everyone assassinates other people, uh, sometimes more subtly, sometimes less subtly. Um, They use, they control their media. They use massive amounts of soft power. Intelligence agencies are very active in fomenting coups, buying off politicians, supporting student movements, uh, funding sit-ins, paying out journalists. Everyone does it. Everyone is as bad as each other. It's just that the the West are are better at it because English is the world medium of communication and uh, uh, they have a soft power in terms of their consumer culture, which is a very attractive thing for the, the third world. Then you've got other theories. One says that the Jews run the world, which is that uh, you know powerful Jewish interests uh, control the the media in the West and uh, in business in Wall Street and, and New York and in London. Then you've got this idea that uh, Islamists or Islam runs the world. Uh, Saudi Arabia, through its religious foundations, builds mosques around the world with a view to subverting it uh, and uh, encourage immigration from the Middle East so that uh, the Western world eventually becomes Muslim. I mean, this was very much in vogue 15 or 20 years ago, and you've you've seen it sort of fall away, uh, especially now with the the Palestinian issue rising up and actually generating a lot of worldwide sympathy for the Muslims. Then I guess you've got the idea that the British Empire runs the world, that it's only changed its name, but it kind of lives on. Um, And then you've finally got this view which is increasingly popular because it seems to explain uh, the COVID crisis, which is still on our minds, which is something like this, that, that well, there's a com- as far as I can tell, it's a combination of sort of powerful bankers who've been at this for, for decades and looking, through, looking to control the world through bureaucrats, uh, partly 
it, at the very top, that is the United Nations, partly in order to limit the world's population, which is growing fast, we know that, and partly in order to control them through new digital forms of identification and digital forms of currency. And it's it's interesting because although I'm an adherent of the old idea of cloak and dagger runs the world, it actually takes into account, it's got a large explanatory value for the COVID crisis because that played a large part in, in sort of mobilizing the populations in fear. And we know that fear can, if you could frighten people, you can control them. Um, there's, uh, there's a particularly interesting thing in that we're talking about digital currencies as a way of uh, we, we've seen that with the um, Russia being cut off from the SWIFT system, which meant that they were castrated as a nation, uh, although not very much because they were able to sell uh, their goods to countries which did not go by the SWIFT system. But individuals are, in the West are much more vulnerable to that. So we could, we could see potentially with the new digital currencies that people are going to be much more uh, vulnerable to diktats from above. And this theory this very very successful and interesting theory also argues that climate change is one of those fear factors that uses uh, the, the control that uses to control the populations and finally as i understand it this version of the, this theory which Jakob Nordengord, my next guest is going to talk about argues that there isn't that such a difference between russia and the west but they're all sort of part of this gigantic transnational cabal so that some of the opposition is is artificial as it were and for for the birds for the global audience but anyway, uh, Jakob Nordengold is hugely successful and hugely interesting, and I'd like to welcome him to our show after the break. This is TNT Radio. Your voice heard here. The government needs to step up and do its job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show. Um, Thank you very tell much. Us a little, tell us a little bit about your theory. Tell us about where... It all started in the 1970s uh, with, or the 60s, was it the Rockefeller family who were funding climate change? We'll, we'll take a chronological story of how the, today's control society was, was created. <clears throat> well, you have to go back to, to the 50s. And uh, I mean, where do you start? Uh, <clears throat> but in the 50s, the, we have, first we have the, the United Nations, the United Nations project. Uh, uh, the Rockefellers were very involved in, in setting up the United Nations, and also they financed uh, the headquarters. They uh, were responsible for the architecture and everything. Uh, so in the fifties, they uh, started a, a new project called the Spe Special Studies Project at um, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And uh, in charge of this was uh, Nelson Rockefeller. He was uh, soon to be vice president in the seventies. Uh, we had David Rockefeller, uh, the head of Chase Manhattan Bank, and uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, and so on. And uh, we also had a, a young uh, academician called Henry Kissinger, and uh, he was uh, part of that project. And they discussed uh, how, more or less, how could we uh, get uh, um, make United Nations a uh, more powerful institution. Uh, they were uh, very much into to internationalism, of course, and uh, I mean, we know that uh, Dave Rockefeller has been one of the uh, major forces to uh, to introduce global <coughs> globalization, economic globalization, and uh, founded uh, think tanks like the Trilateral Commission and so on. 
So, uh, but at, at this, uh, this uh, project was going on for a couple of years, they, they set up, how do we achieve a, a new international uh, economic order? And uh, they say we have to, uh, we can use science because science is something that's uh, very international. Uh, it uh, we have and uh, uh, we have uh, cooperation uh, between nations and uh, even between uh, nations that were in the, the Soviet bloc and the, the West bloc at that time cooperated. So they saw this is very fruitful, and uh, they uh, they looked upon some problems because uh, the Rockefellers at the time had. Uh, uh, were philanthropists like uh, Rockefeller Foundation. So they were very, very involved in, in uh, scientific uh, research and funding of um, science. So they uh, knew a lot about what was happening in the scientific community. And they, uh, they saw that uh, some areas were uh, very good to, to exploit, uh, to use for this. And this was climate and it was health. Um, that was the, the two two main things. So they decided to we have to to fund this. We have to to use uh, uh, this to to further this uh, because they said uh, climate that's a problem. That's I mean it's knows no borders. It's uh, it's uh, spans all over the globe. Everyone is affected. And we have a history of, of uh, uh, I mean, bad weather, especially in Scandinavia, where we, uh, I mean, uh, it was very brutal in, in the uh, 19th century in Sweden and uh, in Finland, and uh, many people died of uh, bad climate at that time. So uh, that was very useful. And then uh, they also talk about health, of course, because uh, we have this uh, uh, epidemics and and pandemics and and everything so uh, and that's uh, cross uh, borders as well so uh, they saw this as uh, an important uh, areas to to uh, fund uh, and I also interrupt yes i want you to carry on with the narrative because were they motivated by uh, just power reasons i mean cynical reasons the cl climate is a global issue so that's a way to create globalization or were they generally phil philanthropic no, I mean, <clears throat> they, they, uh, they are businessmen. I mean, they, they, that's how they operated. And they, I mean, they had a, a big empire with a Standard Oil Corporation. So they saw it more like uh, useful for uh, uh, achieving this. Uh, I mean, they wanted to, to, uh, to create a world more based on uh, Cooperate, international cooperation, international agreements, and uh, all to further the idea to that the nations need to to give up their own uh, independence because we can't tackle these big problems ourselves. So we have to to have these uh, supranational uh, authorities that take care of things. So and 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 these. These ideas were late. I mean, this report in the 50s were used by the administrations in the 60s, the, the American presidential administrations, uh, first Kennedy, then uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and uh, also Nixon. 
And they were very involved in, in uh, the White House at that time. So a, a lot of these ideas that were in this report were, were put uh, made politics in the 60s. And also the climate was, uh, I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson was the first president was actually was talking about the changing climate and also that uh, said that it's because us humans, we humanity is doing this to the planet and we have to curb this. So they took it from there into to the 70s and then uh, and then made uh, real policy of it in the 80s. Uh I'll just interrupt you briefly. Uh, yeah, and, and I want you to carry on. It's very interesting because I was, I thought I, I could, I could have, make a program without mentioning Dog Hammarfeld, but I don't think I'll succeed. Uh, as you, both you and I know, he was the Swedish Secretary General of the UN, and I, I wrote an ebook about him. Um, and he, for some, is a is a hero, and I guess, but for for many TNT viewers, is a sort of a demonic figure because he was actually the closest figure who was likely to bring the UN to sort of global turn it into global force. And I've seen in the archives that Kennedy and Hammerfeld were collaborating actually to, to turn the give the UN much, much more power. So um it's so from my little little perspective, what you're saying is bang on the money. Absolutely right. And, and very interesting that you fit um, I could fit that into a, into a bigger context. But anyway, carry on. Yes, we're, so in, in the 1980s, because first there was global cooling and then there was global warming. So were they interested in combating global cooling in the 70s? Uh, the thing is... Or the global had, uh, cooling I, myth, if, yes, if you like. The thing yeah. is, uh, uh, the history of this is that in uh, 1971, they had a meeting in uh, outside Uppsala in Sweden, uh, Vik's Castle, that's for, where the place where uh, the originator of the uh, CO2 theory was born, uh, Svante Arrhenius. We had a big meeting here. It was the preparation for the uh, UN conference on the environment in 1972. And they discussed um, climate at this meeting. And uh, it, it, was not, it was not like uh, they had decided on, on the carbon dioxide theory at that time. Uh, the meeting was about how could uh, can uh, the man influence climate, and uh, that was uh, so. They they had some uh, some research groups that were uh, at this meeting, and uh, one meeting uh, said it's carbon dioxide. Another group said it's global cooling. Uh, right, and uh, and and then they argued about this, but. The thing was, why did we have global cooling, uh, according to these scientists? It was the, because of burning of fossil fuels, aerosols blocking the sun. So that was their theory. So uh, in both cases, it was uh, uh, us humans that were responsible for, for changing the climate. And later, in 1975, at a meeting in Norwich in, uh, in England, they decided uh, that uh, it was a, a UN-sponsored meeting, and and uh, they decided it's uh, the carbon, it's the carbon dioxide uh, that's the driving force. So more or less, that, you, that's when uh, sort of, things change. Are you sort of suggesting that they were looking for a cause that you could pin on humans as a means to ultimately to control human beings? That was their main yeah. aim, rather than the science. Somehow, that's what I'm reading into what yeah. you're saying. 
Yeah, yes, the thing is, we had a, actually a meeting in, in 1970 that was the precursor to this meeting in, in yeah. uh, uh, outside Uppsala, uh, that was in, in uh, USA. And during that, this, uh, that meeting, they, they looked into a lot of uh, environmental problems. And, uh, and, and uh, it was, uh, they were trying to find um, um, ways that humans interacted with the environment and where they uh, could influence it negatively. So uh, with very, uh, I mean, not that much in input. So that was the, uh, that was what they intended to, they wanted to have that from that conference. And uh, because this was, of course, before the meeting in Stockholm. So it was a lot of work in the scientific community to look upon these things. How do we humans influence uh, the environment? And then okay, maybe I'm jumping ahead yeah. of you here because you, you've got me really interested now. But um, yeah. so what you're saying, to be charitable, you're, you're saying, well, they were looking for an issue that mankind, a common enemy, rather than fight each other as in wars, so two world wars this century, yeah. in the last century, they were finding a, a, a war we could fight that you, would unite humanity. And so they're looking at different environmental problems. A sinister interpretation of that would be, well, they were looking for an issue that we could control humanity's behavior by saying that you mustn't behave badly or we'll all go to hell but anyway maybe i'm preempting you carry carry on the next next story or the next development in the 1980s is yes uh, i mean what's what transpired out of uh, this meeting in uh, 1972 the big uh, environmental meeting in stockholm uh, it was uh, they started to to um, uh, work I mean, united nations uh, the wmo and uh, united nations environment program we started to work a lot with uh, the with conference about climate and how it influences uh, the, the human uh, man influence climate and uh, and uh, also they started to talk about uh, sustainable development. So so that's a that's a big thing uh, that came out of this. And uh, they had this uh, Brundtland Commission in the eighties uh, that uh, ran for, uh, through the UN system. And we had Gruhalen uh, uh, Brundtland was heading this, and also with a with a lot of people very close uh, to. Uh, those who set up the UN conference in Stockholm, uh, connected to the uh, Rockefeller Foundation and so on. And uh, and uh, this resulted in uh, the, the, the Brundtland report, Our Common Agenda. And in that report, climate was made an issue. And this was because of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund that started this process in the 50s, they actually uh, they gave funds to a couple of, of scientists, uh, one in Sweden, um, a British ecologist called uh, Gudun Goodman uh, at the Bayer Institute. They gave uh, him money and uh, because he was about to write the energy chapter in the Brundtland report and in that uh, report and they said to him we had to we want the climate to be mentioned in this report so he did it and uh, got funded for it and uh, we also found a, a lot of other people involved in this process that uh, in the Brundtland commission that uh, yeah put it in place <laughs> so you okay. can say can, can and, I just, and in I, yeah 
are are you taking a? I mean, is is it implicit in your whole argument that the whole climate threat is exaggerated, or are you agnostic and not taking a view on that? Uh, well, initially, the thing is, I have looked into uh, both sides. I mean, I have uh, I've done this long. Uh, I mean, it's it's a. Uh, I followed all the way back uh, from more or less Svantarenius how this carbon dioxide theory evolved. But also, I also looked into the science, uh, the climate science. I mean, I'm a geographer, so that's one of the things I, I've actually had a, a very short course in, in the climatology. Uh, but, but, it's, um, uh, but I started to talk to a lot of uh, mostly uh, Swedish uh, professors that had been involved with climate science in the 60s and 70s and uh, that said there's something wrong with this. I mean, we don't have the evidence for this. And then I looked into to, uh, the science and, uh, and it was kind of shocking because I couldn't find any evidence. I, I, it was, mm. it, 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 you couldn't prove this, uh, how much the, is the humans responsible for and so on. I mean, uh, I mean, nobody, very few argues that we don't have any influence at all or that carbon dioxide don't have an yeah. influence on, on temperatures and so on. But it's, I would say it's very, very exaggerated. And if you mm. look into the scenarios that they present the IPCC, uh, they always take the worst case scenario and present. It will never be like way. It's, it's like when Al Gore also uh, started uh, had this uh, movie about inconvenient truth, and mm. and he talks about seventy meters sea rise, and and, and it's just exaggerations. But it won't uh, don't, don't climate don't function like that. It's it's like mm. okay if we melt everything on uh, Greenland, uh, we could have those effects, but it's not possible to do this. Mm. Uh, it will take uh, thousands of years to, to do that. Uh, so, so it was, uh, I, I couldn't find anything. So, it, I mean, it's, it was very shocking because I was, uh, I mean, uh, I had first very, I thought of a university that we were uh, actually working for the truth, but uh, then I found out that it was very, very much a game of um, money and power involved, and also yeah. people. Yeah, that, that, I mean that's a realization I've also had. I, I used to think yeah. that science at universities were the gold standard of truth, but of course it's it's politics and and professors place they're like medieval popes, you know. They place their researchers at other universities as as bridgeheads for their theories and science progresses with the death of the last scientist or something like that, you know, a lot of that. Yeah. So that's the kind of sociology of science I wasn't aware of, but my view is that global warming is happening. It's just, we, I mean, that's, that's the stronger, that's, that's the weaker assertion. You can say that with greater certainty, but whether to the degree it's happening from humans, we don't know. Um, but sure. I mean, I'm, I'm open to anything. I'm a sort of, I have a kind of middle position. But anyway, what you're saying, I mean, we can have that debate separately, but you're sort of saying we're talking about the, polit the, the politicization of that and the way it's been used to control people. So should we kind of yes. move, on, move on into the into the narratives? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
when we set up the IPCC in uh, 1988, and immediately afterwards, uh, United Nations made this to the, the, the big issue of its time. Uh, Cold War was over and the, the warm war started. And uh, then we have really seen a, a progression of this. Uh, I mean, I, I, a lot of pe the people at the 80s couldn't believe, they, they couldn't uh, uh, understand what we, this would uh, evolve into. And... Um, and uh, they, they started this uh, United Nations uh, convention, uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change in, in 92. And uh, since then, we have had the, all these uh, climate summits every year. Um, but let's talk about uh, how, how should we, uh, how could we uh, lower the levels of carbon dioxide? And, uh, yeah. and that's... Uh, when you look into to what they, they, they talked about, their purpose, I mean, it's about limiting uh, our way or living. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a form of uh, control uh, written into it from the beginning. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, as time has progressed, we have seen more and more uh, suggestions on how, and, uh, how we should construct this uh, new system because that's what I see that climate change is. It's it's the it's the way to create a new uh, international system, and it's very much based on on carbon, on uh, uh, carbon dioxide measurements, and uh, we now have uh, have have had for a time a lot of think tanks suggesting that we will. Uh, I mean. The dollar, the petrodollar is going down. So instead, you will have a new system built on carbon, uh, a carbon currency or a, a carbon coin. So, so it's very, very much. Uh, it's not that, I mean, people tend to think about as it's an environmental issue. But it's very much a financial issue. Uh, it's it's about uh, uh, developing a, a new system to run the world, and and climate change is is a part of it. It's it's, it's the change. It's a it's a a global change of the, of the, mm. the whole society. I think it's a very refreshing and very interesting view, and it's got a lot of. Uh... I could see why it's taken on. I can see why a lot of people, you know, on, on YouTubes and blogs talk about these things. Does this also relate to the COVID thing? I mean, and is it the same people who are piling on these control measures or did it evolve separately or, or what? No, it's very, very uh, much uh, the same people. As I, as, as I said, in, in the 50s, one of the areas for the Rockefeller Brothers Farm said we need to to work on that is uh, health, and if you yeah. go into to uh, the development of, I mean, first we have the uh, precursors to to the WHO, that was yeah. more or less a Rockefeller institution, and uh, yeah. if you look into the history, you find the Rockefeller Foundation very very involved in the setup of the WHO in 1948, and they were one of the main philanthropic financiers of the WHO during the, the, the 20th century. And uh, right. then uh, we have had a shift um, 
Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have uh, right. stepped up and uh, became uh, the major financier from the philanthropic side. But the, the right. Rockefeller Foundation and other foundations as well has been very, very involved in this. And this is uh, exactly same people that has been uh, working with the climate narrative. It's uh, it's the same source. Why have we not read about this in our mainstream media for decades? The the Rockefeller behind all this. Is it because they own the press or have contacts in the media or, or what? Um, yes. Um, I mean, that, that was one of the things uh, during, uh, I mean, the early... 20th century, we have John D. Rockefeller. He was very, very uh, more or less hated at that time because uh, he was seen as ruthless uh, and uh, wanted all for himself. Um, and uh, so they decided they they, they actually had a, a peer genius, I believe. Right. Right. Uh, that uh, that uh, said to them, and this was after the Ludlow massacre. Right. That uh, right. may uh, there was much of bad press for the Rockefellers at the time. So right. I really said, you have to stick to the truth, <laughs> because uh, the public will know. It can take time, but we will know. So, mm. uh, and the second thing was. Uh, you have to uh, uh, control media. You have to buy up some uh, some newspapers and uh, make them write good things about you, because that will change the perception of. Uh, so so that uh, they did that, and uh, mm. the the true thing <laughs> uh, about what they did was uh, more or less okay. We can't. Uh, we know that we lie sometimes. But if we control what is true, uh, we will win in the end. I, I think I, that's uh, more or less how you did it uh, with the funding of, of universities and uh, education and everything. So, so you start very, very early on and, um, and also uh, buy newspapers that well, uh, take this message out. Yeah, I, I guess you're not on the Rockefeller Christmas card list, um, and I know you've got a book upcoming on this. You're, you're not a fan. They're not a fan of yours. What we'll do, we'll have a quick break. And uh, you've really highlighted how the, these powerful magnate families control a lot of our opinion and the way they control the debate on uh, climate change. What we'll talk about after the break is is a, a quick disquisition on digital currency and uh, vaccinations as another means, a sort of related means to control the world through the UN and through the Agenda 2030. This is TNT Radio. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints that this will be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said 
and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state, Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. So you've been hugely successful uh, with your theory, and it's very well argued. What sort of uh, feedback or pushback have you had from people when you present it? Uh, I know you go to many conferences and give many speeches around Europe and the world. Um, Well, my pushbacks I had um, very much in the beginning because I was a PhD uh, student at Linköping University in Sweden. And uh, uh, it was during that time I I, uh, started to uh, understand uh, how this is run and uh, also uh, how these major players have been involved because I I studied European Union uh, energy policy. Uh, at uh, uh, as my uh, uh, as my PhD, and uh, during that time, I, I mapped out what actors were involved in uh, uh, this energy game, and naturally, I found that it was uh, okay. Not only European Union, we find this very influential uh, think tanks and also foundations that were funding. NGOs that were involved in the policy process. So, and and I uh, especially uh, found uh, the Club of Rome, uh, the environmental think tank, the Club of Rome was very very involved in in this uh, uh, all the the climate discourse, the environment, and everything. You you, uh, you find Club of Rome uh, in the middle of it. So I wrote about this, uh, and I wrote about a certain uh, important actor uh, that involved involved in the European Parliament, and he was actually the, uh, became the president of the Club of Rome, and he found my uh, uh, someone sent him my doctoral thesis. So uh, he read it, and he didn't like what I wrote. Uh, so he actually tried to intervene in the. Uh, uh, when when I was uh, defending this uh, thesis, uh, he didn't succeed, but uh, it was very shocking because he had very influential friends everywhere at the university. Uh, so it was a hard time for me, and it was a hard time afterwards as well. And uh, it, it's uh, it's not easy to to uh, to present this uh, at the university because. One thing is, if you if you study uh, environment and, and climate policy and so on, it tends to be very. I mean, it's it's very biased towards this is a problem, uh, and uh, you find a lot of activism involved in in the university corridors. So, 
if you present this perspective, uh, it isn't popular because they don't. Uh, I mean, I mean, I know a lot of, of people that they viewed these networks. They are kind of our enemies. They are. I mean, that's the ones who owns the, the Exxon and the big corporations and so on. Um, but they didn't want to to listen to this. They, it was like uh, they defending a worldview, and in that worldview, uh, climate change is a left um, leftish um, issue, and uh, uh, we are the ones that are defending Earth against the evil corporations. <laughs> so, so if you if you say that, uh, you you uh, tend to to come into trouble. So. I've, it has been uh, especially in the beginning and then but after this i became more or less my own uh, and i i created my own platform i worked um, i work i actually worked at uh, stockholm university for a couple of years but uh, after that i um, became my own publisher and also published my my books and have been working with my geopolitical analysis uh, um, or independent, and uh, that way I have found a lot of uh, very good people. So, so nowadays I don't hear that much. I don't uh, uh, get that much trouble because I, I don't uh, I don't attend those venues anymore because mm -hmm. it's like uh, I would say it's very religious uh, at mm. uh, at universities today. Mm. Mm. Well, I think to, to, to me, Jakob, you, you, you're the true spirit of the universities, uh, which all too often these days seem to be places of ideology and conviction, almost like old religious seminaries. Whereas a lot of what you say seems to be true and interesting, it certainly opens up the space of debate. And that's exactly what we're here for and what universities should be about. So, yes. Jakob, I think what we'll do, we'll, we'd love to have you on again to discuss more about digital currencies, but that will have to wait till next time. And uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on. This is TNT Radio. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So, if you're travelling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. 2. Think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighbourhood safer place. 3. It's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, Park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire, and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. The Kids Cancer Project funds vital research into childhood cancers and you fund the Kids Cancer Project. Funding research means giving children back their lives. And who knows what kids with cancer could grow up to do. The Kids Cancer Project. Survival starts with science. Donate now. The Kids Cancer Project. 
discussing national and international issues. You're listening to Pella Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. We're going to change gear now. Carl Ansberg is one of uh, Sweden's best known debaters and commentators. He's a he, he's a professor of ethnology at uh, Emeritus at Stockholm University. Um, but after writing a book about 10 years ago about the risks of uh, large scale immigration to Sweden, uh, he found himself cancelled and even divorced by his wife and lost a lot of friends. But uh, he has persisted in his views on the uh, costs of immigration and uh, draws on his vast experience of ethnology and anthropology and uh, sort of wide different experience of different cultures and knows all about the difficulty of integrating different cultures. Carl, could you tell us about how you got into this subject at all? You wrote this book about about 10 years ago. Nice to that you want to have me. Well, it started with a journalist. uh, Well, it doesn't start so immediately, but uh, that was uh, uh, what made us write this book. His name is Gunnar Sandelin, and he phoned me. We didn't know each other, and he cried in the phone and said, well, uh, it's uh, in darkness. They didn't know the media, what they are writing about when it comes to immigration, and the politicians are quite ignorant. So we decided to write a book together, actually, and uh, started uh, collecting and one year later we wrote the book and then uh, uh, well it didn't uh, make it to the mainstream media Uh, but a very wealthy person that read it uh, said that he would uh, finance an investment in the biggest newspaper in Sweden Dagens Nyheter if we managed to publish as such. And to my surprise, we did. It was, uh, well, a little more than 10 years ago. And uh, it took a whole side in the Swedish newspaper and it really uh, made made it. This was uh, brand new material and uh, People got quite upset when they saw this uh, ad, and uh, uh, there were, well, uh, a lot of demonstrations from feminists and all political correct left people in Stockholm and other places. And, uh, well, it was good for the book, actually. It sold out in four editions. But we really now, were branded as uh, Nazi and uh, fascists and all that, you know. And you were branded okay. as Nazi and fascist, but you you worked very hard to get all your facts straight. So could you give me a summary? I mean, economics doesn't lie, as it were. So I think many people were happy were filled with this woozy feeling that they, do, they were doing something good and that Sweden was doing something good. But what are the figures in terms of employment? demographics, uh, 
Well, uh, this this was a kind of survey that took up several topics. Uh, first of all, economics, of course, and uh, the mainstream media reported that uh, uh, the migration was uh, economically very favorable, which it was, of course, not, because they, they were quite... Uh, um impossible most of the people that arrived from africa and uh, uh, middle east uh, they didn't uh, get jobs in quite advanced uh, uh, swedish factories uh, they didn't have the uh, well they weren't good enough actually and they weren't not weren't very interested either of getting job in Sweden. They were mainly interested in in uh, coming to a welfare society that uh, could uh, finance their lives, which we did. And uh, also we wrote the history. Actually, Sweden was one of the very first multicultural uh, uh, nations. We started already in 1975 as the first country in uh, Europe uh, defining ourselves as a multicultural nation, which was quite strange because Sweden is an old uh, European uh, uh, national uh, uh, state, not at all like Canada, which was the role model for Sweden and an immigrant society. How has this look of Sweden changed? I mean, give us some concrete examples of what it feels like to, to live in Sweden today compared to 10 years ago. Yeah, well, 10 years ago, that's a little short. If, we, if I go back as far as 1975, when we uh, decided to be multicultural, Sweden had a few ethnic minorities. We have the Laps, uh, the Sims, and uh, we have some Jews, and uh, we have some uh, Rome, Romanians. Uh, uh, it was quite small. And uh, the Swedes were maybe 95% of the population. Uh, since then, uh, or if I take the millennial shift, since the millennial shift, we have uh, had uh, an immigration of 2.3 million newcomers, new Swedes, if you want. They used to call them that in Sweden. And uh, before that, we had around uh, less than 8 million uh, inhabitants. So it's uh, around 30% uh, uh, of Sweden's population today either is the first generation immigrants or uh, children to first immigrant children, uh, uh, Swedes. So, and uh, it, since they uh, live in the big cities, uh, the view and the, uh, if you go on the subway or if you move on town is very, very different from 
well, not 10 years ago, but say 20 years ago, or 25 years ago, maybe. So today, uh, it's really what you see is people from all places in the world, especially uh, they come, as I said before, from Africa, from shithold countries like Somalia and uh, Eritrea, and also a lot of uh, Muslims. Uh, we have around 8% of the population in Sweden are Muslims. What does the demographics look like? In I mean, the thing is, the welfare state is so generous um, in Sweden, I think, much more than the United States, where many of our viewers are that it yeah. encourages stay-at-home mothers who have a lot large families. Is that so? Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, uh, large families? No. Uh, we don't know that actually yet, because uh, uh, the Muslims, uh, they do have larger families, but uh, when they adapt to Swedish lifestyle, maybe they also... Uh, come closer to the Swedes who have uh, around uh, maybe 1.5 uh, uh, as uh, as numbers. Uh, so we are far below, and uh, uh, the Muslims are still above uh, the borderline if you want to continue to have the same population number. Which is should, don't, two, by the way, two point one. The the pro-immigration argument is that an aging population and the world's healthiest old population, you know, people die, women yeah. died in their late eighties, yeah, well, needs young yeah. young fit men to work in the factories or work in healthcare and so on. So, don't you need a constant yeah. supply of Im immigrants that way? That's the counter argument. Well, um, yeah, but uh, in that case, we would uh, uh, need to have some other people than from than Muslims and uh, also Africans. They don't uh, suit into the uh, factories. The, the 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 industry is not interested in them. They don't have the capabilities, they don't have the education to go into, uh, uh, to get the jobs. Uh, we have uh, around uh, uh, one million uh, uh, who live on uh, uh, state subsidiaries and uh, and uh, uh, it's quite costly, actually. And uh, the the majority of them are uh, immigrants. So um, if we had other Europeans, or we had uh, from from Asia, or from uh, well functioning functioning uh, countries with uh, uh, good education, also India, of course, uh, that would be maybe uh, good for the country. Maybe it's necessary. Sweden is not alone with those 
low numbers on, on demographic numbers. But uh, oh. the situation is that those people, well, they come some, of course, to Sweden, but that's a minority. And Sweden has these high taxes, but I, I remember visiting one a refugee center and talking to some young people. I think they were from Iran, and they said, oh, yes, everybody's leaving Iran now. Um, but my, And then they discussed among themselves, and one said, oh, yeah, but the clever ones go to, to America because you can work and make a lot of money there. Yeah. You have to really work. But the ones who have it yeah. more relaxed, they come to Scandinavia. So the, yeah. the welfare state has this negative effect of attracting people in a way. Of course. You, the rumor goes that here you, you don't have to work, you get money from the state and uh, you get a place to live and you get all kinds of support and also you can come here first and then you bring your family because uh, you are entitled to do that and the state will support even them. Of course it's very attractive and uh, now uh, since a few years back uh, Sweden uh, Swedish politicians say that we have the lowest uh, uh, immigration numbers in Europe, they realize now that this is no more than a catastrophe with this uh, high immigration numbers. But uh, it ain't true because uh, this is a big ship. It's like turning Titanic or something like that. So we still have around 100,000 new immigrants coming every year. And uh, that is uh, uh, that makes us the leading country in Europe by far when it comes to immigration. Sweden is a small country. Hmm. Isn't there a humanitarian argument for letting in all these people from countries where they can earn a dollar or two a day? I mean, Sweden could afford it. It's a, it's a rich country. It's an empty country with many resources. Well, they say that. It's a rich country. Uh, all the welfare state actually slim, uh, slims everything. And uh, you, we don't have uh, uh, police enough. We don't have, we have gangs uh, and are leading in Europe when it comes to uh, shooting is in the streets among gangs. It's quite spectacular, actually, because Sweden is known to be a very peaceful uh, country. Uh, we have all kinds of problems, and uh, the immigration is, are, is uh, all the problems matter, you could say. Uh, we need uh, new hospitalities, and you have to wait for maybe 10 or 15 hours if you uh, happen to have a have an accident or if you in a, another way want to to get help from uh, the hospital and uh, uh, well actually we made a welfare society that uh, should serve a very peaceful population around 8 million inhabitants and now we have uh, a little more than 10 million inhabitants and maybe uh, 2 1 million of them 
are quite problematic and uh, we feel our presence and we build new but it ain't Carlos, we'd like to thank you very much for your uh, time and we hope to have you on again. Thank you very much. This is TNT Radio. Thank you. Thank you.